0: So this is my first time giving a talk in in this hall. Um, And actually the last time I was telling someone, the last time I was here on a Monday night was still in the old hall, the the trailers that were down the hill. So it's been a while. Um, I'm thinking down there might have been a little bit easier, but this is fine too. This is beautiful. This is absolutely beautiful though too. Um, So I'm going to offer some reflections on uh, Dr. King. And the parallels are where I've seen the practice meet, or my Dharma practice meet, uh, the practice of peace and love that that he taught. And I've worked with kids for youth for 27 years now. And so I draw, most of it I'll draw from uh, their conversations and their wisdom rather than Probably much of what i 've learned uh, in school or otherwise, and part of that came out of spending some time with uh, my parents over the holiday and actually once once this is over you'll you'll be able to come up and take a look at this. but I found a picture, and it was a picture of my mom and my brother and I um, during my brother's birthday. And it was August 4th, 1968. And I'd seen the picture like for years. And you know, we're smiling and, and, and happy and everything. And uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful picture. And in having a conversation with my mom about this picture, finding out exactly when it was, because I was, wasn't quite sure the, the year. And when she said it, she said, yeah, it was just announced that um, Dr. King was assassinated. And it was really striking to me that, you know, she, she held, um, this birthday party for us, which happened on, you know, every year for, for both my brother and myself. And she said she, she, she did it. She just didn't want it to be, um, a sad day that as much as she and the rest of us loved Dr. King and appreciated him, she felt that he taught her that we have the capacity to hold happiness and sadness, and he taught resilience. And so in this picture for her is resilience, and I've come to see it as as quite a resilient picture. We also had in that conversation, um, both had memories of different years that we celebrated Dr. King's birthday. And though, you know, it became an official holiday at some point, um, when I was growing up and within my family, we always celebrated Dr. King's birthday, and we also memorialized uh, his, his death date, the assassination date, as well. And so there was always something to do. On that holiday, typically, was listening to um, one of his speeches on real to real. This is how long ago that was. <laughs> um, but what I most remember is actually hearing the adults tell stories of Dr. King. And you know, my 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 father had gone in 1963 um, during the summer to serve, and uh, my grandfather was a Baptist minister, so he had. Um, had taken classes with with Dr. King during various uh, Baptist conventions and things like that. And my mother reminded me that when I was 10 years old in 1974, that we wrote letters to Dr. King. And she found the letter. And it was quite moving for me. I, um, yeah. Dear Dr. King, my mama always says that we wake up in the morning with love in our hearts and our minds on freedom because that was your plan. We don't play, and we don't stray. We sing that song at church. It makes everybody happy and sad. You died, but you are still here, and all of the kids. Walking and talking with our mind, our mind stayed on freedom. Singing and praying with our mind, our mind stayed on freedom. Teaching and preaching with our mind My mind stayed on freedom, and those were words to a song that my mom and dad would sing, and that that I really, really loved. And I think I loved it mostly because they sang it together. So it was like this duet in the kitchen, in the middle, you know, in the middle of dinner, Um, and I was always quite impressed by by that. And so that letter has always um, inspired me with all the kids that I've worked with to be able to mm, offer the same thing to them. So I talk to them, you know, about uh, Dr. King, about the civil rights movement, uh, in language that a child can understand. You know, it's Typically I've worked with, I've been uh, fortunate enough to teach kindergarten at some point, um, at various after-school programs, summer camps and directed summer camps. So typically I'm working on a, on a holiday. So on the Dr. King holiday, um, typically I've had, been holding a camp. So I've had an opportunity to engage the kids around, around the holiday. And so I've collected things that they've, that they've written. So these are bits and pieces of some of the letters that the, the kids have written over the years. And so th- these were based on reflections. I asked them to write a letter to Dr. King, sort of asking him about his life and what um, what they could do as their, as 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 children to to um, help further his vision or help further his mission. So these are some of them. Wow, you had lots of love to share. I promise not to hate anybody, ever, 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 even the boys. (laughs) I know what sad, mad, and scared feel like. I don't know what hate feels like. And my mom says, if we keep love in our hearts, we won't know. My dad said, love is good, love is great, Dr. King is (laughs) anti-hate. I'm black and white, like Obama. (laughs) (laughs) I go back and forth and all around for love for both. Dr. King, I only hear good stuff about you. Did you talk to your kids about... The right time to go to bed. <laughs> Did you ever lose a lot against the big kids? I remember the the kid that that wrote that one in particular. He was uh, very much like myself as a child. He was very competitive, and yeah, so he couldn't. He had to get in his little dig about his his uh, sports. <laughs> And this was from a little girl from Poland. I heard about Dr. King even in my country. He is big everywhere. People want peace even if they don't know it. Are you really a doctor? (laughs) What kind? (laughs) If you're a doctor of love, then... That's the kind of doctor I want to be, plus a basketball player. <laughs> so I envision this child being a basketball player by the name of Dr. Love. I mean, it's, it's kind of- It's been quite wonderful over the years to work with kids and be be able to um, have discussions about Dr. King and talk to them about Dr. King. i much prefer it actually having a conversation with, with an adult or, or sort of memories of, of King. I would much prefer to have a conversation with a five-year-old about um, their impressions on, on what uh, Dr. King's message meant or is. And I know he's been, you know, definitely co-opted and, in, and, in, and, in, in commercials and it's the I Have a Dream speech and the sound bites and all of that for sure. And there were some pretty, um, edgy for the time and, 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 and radical things that he had to offer and he had to say. And, and those are not lost on me either. Um, and actually we'll probably share some of, share some of those in a bit. Um, but I chose to, um,
1: Well, he said, I've decided to stick with love.
0: Hate is too great a burden to bear. And it just seems timely. Because it was the sticking to love that has inspired me and supported me over my own journey. I think I've been most impressed with his willingness to live in the integrity of that for which he stood. And his steadfastness and forthrightfulness mirrors what I've been taught in my Dharma practice and what I try to put forth in my practice.
1: Taking the seat with dignity.
0: I think he's often thought of as being uh, standing against uh, hate and against injustice. But I think it's important to note that he actually took a stand for love and for equality and for equity and for compassion and for empathy and for non-harming. I think it's important, and it's been important for me to um, hold that close to my heart and to share share it with the children, to share it in those affirmations that this is what he stood for and of course you engage against um hate and injustice but the principles i think that 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 what he uh, taught and what he founded were built on were principles uh of gandhi's influence and I believe Dr. Howard Thurman had gone when Gandhi was was still alive, sometime in the, the mid or late 30s, had traveled to India as part of a um, they called it the the, the pil- pilgrimage to friendship or pilgrimage of friendship, and he learned of uh, Gandhi's nonviolent philosophy and what's Really inspiring and incredibly about that particular strand is that. So when he comes back, when when Dr. Thurman comes back from meeting with Gandhi, the first place he goes is Atlanta to Daddy King. Martin when Martin Luther was a little boy then, so he goes to his father's house and they have a conversation about um, Gandhi's nonviolent approach, and so Daddy King takes notes for that doesn 't put it into practice, but he takes notes of, of this trip and then some years later, just after um, Gandhi was killed, Baird Rustin, another african American civil rights leader, a gay man who was actually quite at at the forefront of the of, of the civil rights movement and um, pacifist movement nonviolent movement, and was quite important but because of the times and homophobia, just didn't receive the credit um, that was probably well. That was probably that was uh, owed to him. So when Baird Rustin came back, he met with King and was King's mentor and encouraged him to seek out his non-harming, non-violent philosophy and movement. And King remembered it from this conversation of Dr. Thurman and um, his father, and he remembered it again in meeting with Thich Nhat Hanh in 1966. So there's there there's a, a direct lineage of, of voices and incredible uh, peacemakers in Gandhi and. King and Thich Han, There's a link with all of them there. And it's actually, I find it quite beautiful. And I was told this by a man, uh, the late Dr. Vincent Harding, um, who I actually didn't know at the time. I was with, with, with a dear friend, and we were at um, Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, for a conference. And he was there. And I didn't know at the time, but he was the uh, the main speechwriter for Dr. King's Beyond Vietnam speech. And so he had wonderful stories to share about um, about Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh. And we had a brief bit of a conversation about um, what it is that I do. And, you know, so I talked to him a little bit about meditation, which led to him uh, mentioning him helping to organize the meeting with Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh, and that Dr. King, of course, knew of meditation because of Thich Nhat Hanh. And again, because of the time and because he's a Protestant preacher in a largely African-American community, um, offering up uh, meditation was just going to be a little bit, uh, offering a meditation in Atlanta, Georgia at that time was going to be a little bit esoteric and strange. So, but he, but he, uh, uh, was able to see that what was he was doing through prayer. There was also a relationship there, and so he had a great, healthy love and respect for Thich Nhat Hanh. and in fact, you know, nominated him for Nobel Prize, which actually I don't think ended up was actually ended up being given that year, but but he was nominated for that. So these links of. Dr King's teachings and the dharma for me if most come alive with what we call the 10 perfections or the the paramis or I actually like to I look at them uh Or I have a preference for calling them the priorities, the ten priorities, like holding these things as ten priorities and seeing that if these ten priorities are actually uh, um, cultivated and developed, then it actually puts you into direct alignment with non-harming and non-violence and with King's teachings, and it allows you to, to do that and be engaged and well. It's a generosity or service. It's virtue, it's living ethically, Sila, renunciation, simplicity, discernment, wisdom or understanding, Equanimity, balance, patience, persistence, truth determination, and goodwill. And I always like to think if you never sat again and you just contemplated these qualities and did a a mental check, what's the attitude in the mind, and reflected on these regularly, I think you'd have a pretty well-rounded practice. From the Dhammapada. Hatred does not cease through hatred at any time. Hatred ceases through love. This is a universal law. This is another translation. Hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By non-hatred alone is hatred appeased. This is a law eternal. And then a final translation. Hostilities aren't stilled through hostility, regardless. Hostilities are stilled through non-hostility. This, an unending truth. And I mostly chose actually to read all three of those because the first one, hatred doesn't cease by hatred alone. I'm never, I never remember if that's a fake Buddhist quote or if it's an actual Buddhist quote or not. So I find myself constantly looking it up and sometimes it feels like it appears on the fake quote list. It's, it's actually quite lovely whether it's fake or not. But <laughs> it is in fact from the Dhammapada. Dr. King, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Hatred paralyzes love. Love releases it. Hatred confuses love. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illuminates it. It's both. It's dharma. It's truth in both of that. It's very much... Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after oneself? By looking after others? By patience, by non harming, by loving kindness, by caring for others. From the Samyutta Nikaya, from the suttas, from the teachings of the Buddha. Again, pointing to the paramis, pointing to the priorities. I had a couple of folks ask me if I was going to talk about some very specific things that are going on in the news, and um, because this was an opportunity to do so. And it is. And I find 20 years into the practice that the answer again is going to be I've decided to choose love because hate is too great a burden to bear.
1: And we wobble and we fall off that and we fall
0: short of the mark. And we come back. Any bit of consistent practice moves what Dr. King would have called the moral compass. Just orients you towards loving kindness, orients you towards compassion, orients you towards empathy. So my answer to any number of questions that those folks had to me, or more love, I feel for you, I feel for us. Can we find some compassion in there? wow, he's really suffering. And it doesn't mean we don't do anything. For me, it just means that I actually take the time to sit down, that I actually take the time to reflect, that I actually take the time to check for all those qualities in here before I open my mouth. And that doesn't happen all the time. I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm not even going to pretend as though that happens all the time. And I did want to leave a little time for comments and questions and answers. I'm curious on, on, on your thoughts and your reflections on Dr. King and, and his teachings. But I did want to offer a few of the mm, lesser-known quotes, and this was actually at the encouragement of my father. He calls these the "make it plain" quotes. At that time, sort of late late fifties or so. It's obviously just make it plain rather than sugarcoat any of it. So these are a few of those that often that right. These are the mainstream, uh, or these are the quotes of Doctor King that are uh, not often seen or heard in the mainstream we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to even seat them together in the same school. That was from his Beyond Vietnam speech in 1967. And actually, the one thing that I'd noticed about the radical quotes, <laughs> or the, the so-called radical quotes, is most of them typically were in 1967. He gave that speech on April 4th, 1967. He was assassinated April 4th, 1968. His approval rating was 70% of the country disapproved of Dr. King in 1967. So we have these like wonder, like I said, he's been co-opted. We have these wonderful things that are always said about him. But at that moment, there wasn't a lot of support. And this was, this wasn't, this was not a lot of support across the board. This wasn't just middle class white America. This was, was, um, black youth. This was across the board. Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of some great Protestant ethic of great hard work and sacrifice. The the fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. So there, and there are many, many. But again, I, I in, in, encourage you all to take a look at the list of the, the, the paramis, the priorities. And if you have a, a, a chance to do so, without having it be an a MLK holiday, to take a look at, at some of the, the uh, speeches and writings of, of Dr. King and the overlap and parallel of those things. And definitely, if you have an opportunity to have a listen to the freedom singers singing, Woke Up This Morning.
1: That's what allows me to have the orientation that keeps me on the path. My mind on freedom,
0: no matter what else is going on around me. So I'm curious what what you all think and what you all have, have to say. So I think we have a microphone somewhere, hopefully. I think it's coming there. Yes, please.
2: Just wanted to briefly present a quote fr- that I believe was from the 1967 period that Dr. King said, which was, um, The greatest purveyor of violence in the world is my own government. And that was part of the, the radicalism and the, the deep truth speaking that got him that low approval
0: rating. Yeah.
2: And, and I just wanted to ask a, a question. <laughs> I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. Been in the Bay Area for over 20 years. Wasn't there when the Nazi hate rally happened recently. What was that, like 18 months ago or something? um, A year ago. And I was wondering if Dr. King were alive, what do you imagine he might have said to the protesters who were organizing? To counter protest against the hate rally before it happened, because it seemed to me, just looking at what happened, that it, the 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 tactics, you know, were almost like a setup for it to turn into a big scuffle, and and just looked so different than what what we saw during, you know, the marches and the way King and his colleagues organized, you know, nonviolent
0: protest during the civil rights movement. Hmm. There's something in there that reminds me. There was a bit of a quote, and I'm just definitely I, I don't have the entire quote, where he um, was asked about um, riots happening, and um, he said it wasn't a question of nonviolence and, and violence. It was actually a question of nonviolence and nonexistence, um, which I thought was difficult. <laughs> um, I don't know what he would have said. I mean, it's a that that's a hard one, given all that has happened since since, since 1968. Um, and I know that he was able to and had a healthy respect um, and 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 actually some happiness around there being multiple movements, because there was always an, an idea at some point that he was counter to Malcolm X or that he was counter to SNCC or all these different groups and I know that um, he was continuing to do the work in the way that he was doing it and also influenced by lots of other groups but um, was okay and fine with there being many different types of movements. He wasn't going to, he definitely wasn't going to um, sign off on a violent protest from my understanding i i don't think that ever that don't i don't think that was ever in his his um that was counter to everything that for that that he stood for, but he understood it he understood the rage that was there he understood the rage that was there with with um a lot of young black black college students at at that point in time and lots of other college students. He often spoke about the rage and 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 the disgust. Yeah, I'm not not sure. I do appreciate the quote. It reminded me too. There was another quote that I, I saw recently, and it was one that I actually, looking back now, I, I think I like intentionally didn't write it down because it, it just it <laughs> there was something in it that just felt so disheartening. It was around um, if 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 uh, profit profit motives and, and property rights and machines and computers begin to matter more than people, then this sort of, these three great things of of racism and materialism and militarism were going to be uh, incapable of being defeated. I didn't particularly want to hear that. (laughs) Does anybody else have a comment?
1: Yeah, um, I...
0: I was told you have to go like this, okay?
1: Um, <laughs> I like your, um, that you were talking about, like, the affirmation of that, what he stood for, you know, and not being anti, and, like, aligning with that really, um, helped me. But my question was that I read your bio, and, um, your project in the East Bay transforming something?
0: Transforming Historical Harms Project. Yes. Yeah.
1: I looked it up on Google and I couldn't find anything. Yeah.
0: There's an absolute reason for that. Oh. Actually, <laughs> one of our, our people is, is here. It's, it's because, you know, we. I've so, I was one of the co-founders of the group, uh, myself, um, and a dear friend who's here, Carol Bloom, and another woman, Holly Fulton. And Holly Fulton is the descendants from the largest slave trading family in the United States, the DeWolf family who were not Southerners, they were in Rhode Island. <laughs> um, so we started a group of, of black and white people just to look at historical harms. Um, and that's what it started out as. But it quickly grew to, er the nine of us, 10, ten of us, uh, of folks spending the day having lunch and having dinner and doing ritual and doing meditation and getting to know each other and getting to find out uh, what each other's conditioning is and what brought us to this point. And then we began to have conversations about historical harm and about um, all sorts of things like that. So we intentionally don't have it advertised. We intentionally don't have a website or a web page or anything. We're not looking for funding. We're a group of people that actually want to do the Work at home, we meet in each other's homes.
1: Yeah, cool. I can show you how to
0: start one, I can tell you how to do that, I can help you with that. <laughs> and that actually, the, the so that group too was an offshoot of, of a group that started that I was on the board of, um, called the uh, Coming to the Table. And coming to the table, uh, again, was a group that were the descendants. So these are all the descendants of the founding fathers, the Jeffersons, the Washingtons, the Adams. Um, so the folks, the, uh, uh, the black folks descended from slaves and the white folks descended from the slave owners over the years have been getting together, holding reunions and discussions and talks. So I was a part of that.
3: I just have a quote from,
0: I'm pretty sure it's Gandhi, and he said, When the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Excellent. I thought that one was powerful. Beautiful. Yes, indeed. Beautiful. Thank you.
1: Yes, you've got the
4: mic. Uh, I just finished a book on uh, Dr. King and wondered at the end of uh, his time that he realized that the, the Civil Rights Movement was, was coalescing into various forms of violence that he literally could not adhere to and did not want to become a part of. Do you think that um, it's possible that he died... Uh, certainly no one wants to step up to martyrdom, but in, in a way, do you think that he died as a, as a martyr, that the nonviolent portion of the civil rights movement would, conti- would, would continue to be strong as opposed to the violent mm. and the angry and the frustrated, um, aggressive part of the movement?
0: The distracted mind and the loud mind um, garners a lot of attention. Um, we can wake up in the morning and go head towards the mind, head towards what 's going to be difficult what 's probably not going to happen what 's probably going to be wrong. We have to continue to train in the other direction. Nonviolent and nonviolent movement never went away um, it 's easier to report a bombing it 's easier to report violence, it's easier to report something that's an uprise of those that are um, sick and tired and disgusted and have that just turned into a riot. All of that has been easy to do and is done, and that's where all the intention is. Um, There are plenty of folks and movements and groups that have never strayed from that, have never moved from that, um, We like fake news. We like bad news. We like the difficult. The good news. There are lots of good news. There's lots of great stories. There are lots of kids doing wonderful things. There are lots of youth activists doing wonderful things that are not violent. And we don't often hear about that. They're there. It's happening. And yet, yeah, Dr. King's influence um, definitely wanes some as lots of other groups came on the scene, for sure, but it didn't go away. And I think he lived on and lives on in those around him. And when you wholesale um, have an, an entire generation of leaders assassinated, it's gonna take a little while to, to have that happen again.
3: Thank you. Hi, um, I heard Chris Rock interviewing Maya Angelou, and um, she was talking about and, and interviewing her as she was a mentor to him, not not as a you know as, not as a comedian, but as a mentor. And he said. um Maya, you've known all these amazing people in your life, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and your life has been just this incredible journey, writing and teaching. How come you're not angry? And she said, oh, Chris, I'm very angry, but don't let your anger turn into bitterness because then it destroys you. And I remember, I was just curious what you would have to say about that because it really was like one of those aha moments. That I've held in my heart. Yeah,
0: I mean, I have anger. There are children sitting in cages. We're trying to build a wall, on and on and on. Any number of things, and the anger's there. But but that's I mean that's why at least I'm in the practice or able to use these tools so that I have an understanding of the anger that's being there. What? Exactly, is that anger? The anger in, in my head that, that rises at a certain point in time. There's a color. It's red or it's orange. It's hot. It's in my shoulders. It's in my neck. And so, as you begin to actually know where it is in your body, then I can be angry and allow it to be there. Not try to get, cut it off. Not try to get rid of it. And not engage someone else when I when I am angry. I engage myself when I'm angry and understand and see, and hear, and feel all of those sensations, and all of those emotions. And from that place, then there's some understanding, and I can engage the world and, and do other things. Absolutely. So so anger, I, I would never tell you I'm not. No, I'm angry. I'm pissed off all the time. All the time. <laughs> Bitterness. <laughs> and, and and I'm happy, and, and I'm joyful all the time as well, for sure. And sometimes that's mistaken as, as just, you know, it's as a bypass but i'm 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 not going to live without joy i can't i'm actually not angry and i challenge anybody you're not actually angry 24 hours a day 7 days a week it's impossible right i can be angry at a news story and then you know, actually, this happened just the, the other day. I was angry at a news news story, and then cut open a little thing of cheese, and it was incredible. And all of a sudden, I was really happy. I was really happy, and it was, it was great. And then I cut into the baguette. Oh my God, this is just wonderful! Wait, what was this? Is it what's going on with the wall? We go from place to place.
3: That on? Um, when you talked about the um, freedom is not given by the oppressor, the oppressed have to demand it. Um, you know, I roll that through in my mind often because yeah, as a practitioner, you know, I feel inclined, similarly to what I hear you talking about, you do the work. Inwardly, you do the work. But there just seems to come a moment, and it feels like we're there, where something has to transpire beyond your own practice. And, you know, I, I just, I struggle with what does that mean, because I tend to have that, um, intense passion and emotion when it comes to these kind of things. And yet, you know, I've learned through the practice how to how to work it, just like what you're talking about, how to work it, work the groove. But, you know, and and then there's this idea that there was such waking up during that time because there was a war and because boys were going and being given guns and killing and being killed. And so, you know, this all kind of rolls around in my mind as... You know, is that what it takes? Because it seems like the young people of this country don't, the, the college age, don't, don't seem to really want to wake up. And yet to just sit and watch seems like that that's not necessarily the right thing either.
0: Yeah. I, well, I mean, I, I, I don't encourage or am advocating sitting sitting and, and watching it's it's just I'm I'm advocating um, using the practice to shore up to prepare yourself in order to be able to engage wisely. Um, there's a great you know I I, I taught a, a class once at East Bay Meditation Center. It was after a young African American man had been killed, um, and there were huge protests. And it's a meditation class. It's happening so. With where the center is located in downtown Oakland, from the hall from where I, I was seated and doing the class, you could see from the side windows the blue and red uh, lights. You could hear the helicopters above. We could see the SWAT teams marching by. Um, you could hear hundreds of people out, and we could actually use that were the ob- those were the objects for our meditation. And we could be there, and then we could go outside. So I had people there in the class, and some left, and some came back, and they had the capacity to hold all that was going on around them, and to be able to go outside and join the protest in whatever way they were going to join the protest. And that's possible. I'm not advocate. I don't advocate not doing anything, and I. Yeah, this is the time. This is the time. Which means it's a pretty good time to start a meditation practice. It's a pretty good time to practice because it is time. One more. Another?
3: Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, this might be kind of a big question, uh, transforming that anger into love. Because I think that anger can be quite addictive because it's empowering. And um, sometimes sitting with What's underneath that, which sometimes I think is sadness and overwhelm, uh, takes the energy out of it, um, and I guess I'm sort of thinking about how does that all then transform into like a love that moves forward, that takes action, and what your approach to that might be.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, I can tell a little bit of, of my experience in, in, in any uh, anger or, or hatred that I have just through the practice, just being able to have some, some space that's actually there, then the mind is actually going to settle a bit. And when I can see that I can actually sit in the truth of whatever is going on, in the truth of the light of possibility, then joy is naturally arising from that. Joy naturally arises from seeing that I have the capacity. That we have the capacity for change, for transformation, for love. And at that point, I'm not even looking for the love, not even looking for the joy. It's just naturally there because I've determined to sit down. I've determined to stop for a moment and reflect. I've determined to um, band together with others in the community. And that continuous internal practice and the continuous external practice is what allows that joy to be there. And if I can completely and fully engage here and I'm outside, then seeing lots of others of us actually going to vote, going to use your voices, then there's joy, great joy that just arises out of that. You know how much joy it goes when I'm like sitting on BART and I actually didn't know there was a protest going on and hundreds of people get on and they're, they're actually exercising their right to vote, exercising their, their voices and they've decided to not go to work today and they've decided to go out and, and protest. Right, And that might not be your, your thing. It could be, I mean, folks are, are needed to um, help to fundraise, to make calls, to um, take care of and share that same information with, with, with children. There are many, many, many ways to get involved. And I actually think that getting involved, that engagement, really helps to foster the joy too. And again, I'll just be beating this forever. That's in addition to, that's along with a practice. It's along with the practice. Viharas, heart practices, compassion practices, daily practices. I actually think that, that that's, it's it, it It's crucial. May we all be happy. May we all be peaceful. May we all be free of pain and suffering. May we all live with joy and ease.
1: May we all awaken and be free.